Welcome to episode 77 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we are going to be talking about conferences and festivals. Very timely, as I think I've just gotten sick from my last one. <laughs> <laughs> the conference plague. The, the con crud, as we like to call it. Um, so apologies for any mouth breathing. That would be me. Um, <laughs> anyway, so... We decided that this was going to be kind of a general overview of conferences and festivals. I don't really think it's our place to say which ones to attend, um, only that, you know, conferences and festivals are obviously a useful part of um, publishing and getting your book and the word out there, but also some kind of tips and tricks and things to expect while you are there. So... um well, let's let's look at it. So let's kind of break it down between before you're published and after you're published. Maybe that's a little bit more useful. So before you are published, what sort of conferences do you think are useful for people to attend? Um, I think conferences that are really focused on um, panels about craft or about the publication process. Um, you know, a lot of times those same types of conferences will have like one-on-one -on -one pitch sessions where you can sit down with agents or editors and pitch to them. But I think, um, you know, some festivals are, you know, have a broader scope and some are really focused on, you know, education about the publishing industry and education about how to query and how to write and are more like craft based. And I think if you are a querying author or preparing to query, those are kind of the types of conferences that you will get the most out of in terms of, um, career, you know, the other types of festivals might be fun just to attend as just a fan. Um, you know, but if you're looking for a festival or conference to be educational and to maybe do some networking, then I think you want to veer toward those more educational type conferences. I, I agree. There are festivals. So I think there are kind of three different types of festivals and conferences there are the kind of craft-based ones, the ones that you would go learn a bit more about your craft. These are generally run by organizations like uh, MWA or RWA or um, NCBWI uh, or SCBWI. These are all acronyms, sorry. So <laughs> Mystery Writers of America, Romance Writers Romance. Of, Am of America, and... Um, Society of Children's Book Illustrators, Writers and Illustrators. So these are all professional networks that are focused specifically, generally on your area of publishing. Uh, there is CIFWA, which is Science Fiction Writers of America, if you're doing genre. So there, there are all these organizations, and each one does have its own conference or festival that are that is generally a little bit more uh, craft focused. Um, that's useful for newer writers. So that's kind of one type of conference or festival. And then there is the there are industry festivals. So then that would be things like BEA, 
A-L-A-N, N-C-T-E. These are industry festivals or conferences where it's um, mostly salespeople from publishing houses as well as booksellers and librarians and teachers. And then there are the, I guess, more reader-oriented festivals. Often these are things like comic cons. Mm-hmm. Um, Y'all Fest, which I just came from, that's a, more or less a reader-focused festival. So there, are, and and then Book Con during BEA. So BEA itself, I think, is a industry-focused yeah. conference, but they do have a day called Book Con, and that's for readers and bloggers to to attend. So there are sort of different types of cons and festivals to attend, and I do think that as an aspiring writer, the most useful to you are the ones organized by professional networks. Um, I don't know. Do you think that there is a benefit to attending anything else as an aspiring writer? I think the industry ones for sure skip um, because there's really mm-hmm. nothing there for you. I mean, oftentimes at those conferences, there will be, um, arcs or galleys of books, but those are intended for librarians and teachers and other industry people. They're not necessarily intended for readers. Um, you know, so in those types of conferences, that's really about, um, you know, sales and networking and marketing, and it's just very industry focused and it's really not worth your time. Uh, so I would say definitely skip those. Um, and I it's think it's not that worth your time or money because these are money. pretty, yeah, these are pretty expensive. Yeah. And I mean, I've been to uh, BEA, not for many, many years, but um, I went back when I was still in New York and it was at the Jarvis Center, which it is uh, semi-frequently, which is just like a huge, horrible cavern of a warehouse building nightmare. Like, it's just the most poorly designed, horrific. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's It's a nice circle of hell. You don't want to go there. You don't. And it's honestly just stalls and stalls and stalls of booths from different publishers. And um, it's just not, um, it's just industry. It's geared towards industry people. You're not the audience for it. And so you're not going to get what you're looking for out of those types of conferences. And it's not even a great place to network because all of the industry professionals that are there are there with a purpose. And that is to network with other industry professionals. And so they don't have the time to meet with writers or to meet with bloggers uh, because their time is spoken for. Usually everybody has appointments that are scheduled. And and so it's not really a great place to network either. So even if you're thinking, oh, there's going to be this one room with all these book people in it and I should go, um, it's not a great place to network. So no to those. Um, And then, you know, I think the other two are great depending on what you want to get out of them. You know, if you are interested in meeting writers and going to author signings and seeing authors on panels, then those festivals and conferences that are more geared toward readers are going to deliver those things for you. Um, On the craft-based you know, organization led conferences, there might be, you know, an author or two, uh, maybe a keynote speaker or a person, but it's not going to be, you know, wall to wall authors and signings and things like that. You're much more likely to get that experience at a festival geared toward readers. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about money as a, as an aspiring author. What 
because as we like publishing does not pay a lot and often it a lot of our you know what we pay for often comes out of our own pocket so i think for an aspiring writer local festivals or and local um conferences held by those writing organizations are probably the most useful you could probably attend those um with a discount if you're a member I know SCBWI has a lot of regional chapters that you can join depending on where you are. Now, of course, those organizations are only as good as the people who run them. So, you know, that that could be kind of what it is what it is, because I know certain chapters of of SCBWI are stronger in, in some places than others. I believe the New England chapter is really strong and L.A. is pretty strong. I'm not so sure about others across the country. And when I first moved to North Carolina, I joined SCBWI in the Carolinas because I was looking for other people who wrote YA. So I think as a place to network, it and it is absolutely, um, that one I think is worth your time and money. Mm-hmm. Um, or Science Fiction Writers of America or Mystery Writers of America and RWA. I do believe RWA is pretty nurturing in terms of that kind of a thing. And I know that the romance writing community is some of the most, you know, close knit supportive people. So I think a lot of their chapters have the same sort of feeling to them. Um, but I think anything local is good. Yeah. I mean, it more or less, like JJ said, of course, quality will vary depending on who's in charge, you know, better organized, you know, leaders are going to result in a better organized conference. Um, but, Really, ultimately, they're going to be more or less the same wherever you go, and it's not really worth it to travel for that kind of a thing. Um, You know, like there might not be one in your hometown or your state, but maybe the next state over, maybe you're going to do a short little road trip for a regional type conference. That's fine. But like, I wouldn't advise necessarily booking plane tickets to fly halfway across the country to go to one of these. Um, You know, because I think that the type of education that you're going to get at all of them is going to be pretty similar. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so this is aspiring writers. So now let's Mm -hmm. say you have a book deal and your book is is coming out, but it's not out yet. Are there any sort of conferences or festivals that you would suggest to a writer? I would go to more of the reader-oriented um, in that case, um, because I think that even if you your book isn't out and you don't have a signing you know, yourself, you can meet um, some of your peers and other writers and, you know, talk to people and, um, talk to the, you know, the booksellers and the, you know, the bloggers and the other people that will be there and just go around and get a feel for what it will be like when you yourself, um, you know, might be signing at one of those types of festivals. I think that sometimes your publisher may invite you to one of the industry, um, type of festivals. Usually that's not necessarily before your book comes out, but sometimes for big titles, if you have galleys coming out, they'll have you in the booth. Um, signing sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, It's not everyone and you can't really, you can't really ask. (laughs) Yeah. That would be your publisher's determination and it would be based on who are their lead titles for 
the catalog at that time. And, um, you know, but that's a possibility, but I would think really the reader focused, um, festivals are the ones that you'd want to attend. I don't think you'd get much out of the craft at that point. A lot of them, you Me know, neither. a lot of them are focused on getting, getting published, not being yeah. published. Yeah. So I think that would be a waste of your time. <laughs> I think that, so there, <laughs> when you're a, a writer with a book that is coming out, you're kind of in a strange place because I would say that the reader oriented festivals, um, you can certainly attend as a reader. Those are, you know, you can absolutely attend as a reader, but unless you're on the programming, it's kind of hard to justify going. And moreover, if you're on programming, but you don't have a book read- readily available yet, then what was sort of the point? Not to sound extremely mercenary, but if you don't have anything to sell, then what are you trying to sell on that panel? Um, aside from, I guess, yourself, but that's something else altogether. So it's like, I think at that point, you can certainly attend the reader festivals as um, just to see what it's like. Just mm-hmm. to see what other people are, what authors are like on panel, maybe get an idea of what things are like, introduce yourself perhaps, and just say, hey, my book is coming out. Um, I, as I had mentioned earlier, I just came back from Yalfest, and that was, you know, there were a lot of people with books coming out that attended Yalfest, you know, as like a VIP guest, and we hung out with them. They came to, you know, our parties and dinners and stuff, and, you know, so that's a, a good chance to mingle. Um, but I think unless you have a book already out, there's kind of no point in pitching yourself for programming yet. Um, if your publisher will, can send you to, for example, BEA, again, that is something that the publisher will send you. And it's only likely that the publisher will send you if they, if your book is a fall title. Yeah. So if your book comes out any other season, it's unlikely that they will send you to BEA because these are galleys for fall titles that will be available at BEA that they are usually giving away and that the author will be there to sign. Um, And then also at that point, too, being on BookCon, again, the same principle holds. Like if your book isn't out yet, then being at BookCon with the likes of, you know, people like Marie Lu or Lee Bardugo or Rene Atier is a little bit different. So I think when you are a writer with a book that is coming out, just also enjoy this time not being a public person. Yes, because, yeah, once your book comes out, you're going to have a lot more demands on you for this type of promotion. So this is kind of your chance to lay low. Just and just to enjoy these things for the sake of enjoying them. Um, Can you hear the weariness in my voice right now? Um, it's like, oh, well, you know, I feel so sorry for me, but I'm also really wiped out, you guys, hence the mm-hmm. con crud. Um, so then, okay, so you are a writer with a book out, and let's say that your publisher really isn't footing the money to send you anywhere. Do you think it's worth it to pay your own way to specific places, about pitching yourself forward, um yourself on programming and everything like that, what do you think is a good idea? I think that putting yourself out there on your own, if your publisher is unwilling or unable to do it for you, is always a good idea. I think, you know, 
obviously start from the place of trying to determine what you're comfortable doing, try to determine, you know, what, you know, your mental health is and what you're capable of and what your finances look like. Um, but I think if you can pitch yourself for conferences, um, then I would start doing that because you can always go to the publisher and say, Hey, you know, I bought this ticket. Would you consider covering a portion of it? You know, maybe they say no. Maybe they say, no, it's great that you're going, but that's all on you. But if you start to rack up these appearances and get invited to more things and become more visible, um, eventually the publisher will be able to connect that to sales and then they'll be more willing to send you places. Um, so I think if you kind of get the ball rolling, if your publisher won't or can't, if you can do that yourself, your publisher can probably help you out down the line. At least you can ask for a stipend. Yeah. There have been, um, for example, I went to San Diego Comic Con earlier this year, which we recorded an episode from, and my publisher paid a stipend to help cover some of the costs. They didn't pay for everything, but they paid for a stipend that went towards some of the cost. And that's pretty typical. Usually it, it happens this way. If a festival or a conference approaches your publisher, or rather your publisher is the one to pitch, your publisher is the one that will likely pay for you, or the, um, or the festival will. If the festival approaches you, and they, the festival is not paying, then it's generally going to be on you. So if the publisher solicits it, then they will pay. If you are the one to bring it to them, then you will pay. That's generally the way it sort of happens. Obviously, everybody's publicity department and situation is different. Um, but your publicist, I think also, you know, as part of your marketing and publicity plan, maybe talk to your publicist about a list of festivals and conferences that you would like them to pitch you at. Um, and so who, who knows, like they might pitch and they might, you know, be accepted and therefore the publisher will send you, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it should be a collaborative process. Don't expect them to do everything, but all, at the same time, you shouldn't be responsible for everything either. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a collaborative process, I think, or it should be anyway. It should be a collaborative process. Um, as far as I think, I, I think the same principle sort of applies at any point. If you, if, if it's within driving distance, I think it is worth going or paying your way. Mm -hmm. Generally, if you're already a published author, this again is going into like advanced levels of being in publishing as opposed to being yeah. published, which again are two, two totally separate experiences. You can start to finagle a little bit. Um, you know, like if the festival says, oh, we can't pay X, Y, or Z, then maybe say, okay, will you then waive the conference fee? Like if you can't pay for my host, like my hotel stay, can you waive the fee into the festival itself? Or can you, you know, you can sort of bargain a little bit and say, look, I'm doing this for you guys. It's a local festival. Can you guys at least meet me halfway? Because a lot of festivals will in fact pay, um, they may not necessarily advertise it, so it's definitely within your best interest to ask. And I know it's really hard for a lot of writers to do that. I think asking for money at all, I think, is really hard for a lot of writers to do. So, and But I think that is something, a feeling that we will have to just overcome or get mm -hmm. used to. You have to ask for money. Your time is worth money. Um, 
and therefore you should be compensated in some way. If it's not actually cash in hand, then maybe arrange sales beforehand. You know, say buy X number of copies and then I will come. That sort of a thing. Yeah. That all of it will depend. And to be honest, your publicist should be able to help you with these sorts of things. Like even if your publisher isn't paying, your publisher should help you arrange these things. And in fact, mm-hmm. they should take the lead on these things in terms of organization. Yeah. And they'll have contact information for all of these places too, that, you know, they should be able to provide you with if you're contacting places directly, you know, you can email your publicist and say, Hey, I'm really interested in pitching myself for y'all fest. You know, can you tell me the best person to speak to over there? You know, they, they the should y'alls definitely are kind of different. <laughs> well, that I just pulled that out cause you just went there, but yes, definitely research the different types of conferences and what, how they work. Yeah, the y'alls are not pitched through the publisher at all. Um, the the uh, y'alls come directly to you. <laughs> they come directly to the author, and then you can talk to your public your publicist about it, about the logistics, because they will help you arrange it. But the actual invitation comes directly to the author. The actual organizers of the festival specifically said that they would not deal with public to, with publishers. So, um. But yeah, every festival is different, obviously. So if you find a you know a festival organizer, you do some research, and again, as Kelly said, for the vast majority of them, your publicist may have a contact. So kind of come up with a list of where you which festivals you would like to go, and and kind of brainstorm to see if your publicist will pitch them pitch you at them. Also, you just may come across various different opportunities. People just ask you, and that's fine. Um, you know, that's me this year too. I've, I've been asked to various different festivals with varying levels of uh, having cost compensated for some of them only covered, you know, the lodging. And so there I was responsible for my own airfare or some of them covered only, um, you know, only a certain portion, some covered everything. I think it also depends on whether or not you say yes or no to them can depend on a number of different factors as well. One time, don't do what I did and schedule them back to back because that's a terrible idea. Um, you will have no time to recover whatsoever. So don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes, friends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, timing is one. I think it's always hard unless you've been to a festival, but cost benefit really like you think about the time that you spent traveling, the money that you spend traveling, mm-hmm. in the people that you will eventually end up reaching. Is it worth it? You know, and a lot mm-hmm. of times, newer festivals, it's harder to say because they're new. It's their first year getting off the ground or their second year getting off the ground. Um, so it, again, it is up to you. It is obviously going to be a learning process, and not everybody's not everybody's experience is going to be the same because. One year at this one festival, things may go really great for one author, but then the following year may not go so well for another one. So it's kind of a toss-up. But Mm -hmm. ultimately, exercise your best judgment, and it all comes down to whether or not you feel good about it. Yeah. That's kind of what I can say. So those are my tips about going. (laughs) Now, being. (laughs) Mm at these sorts of festivals. Um, 
Okay, so as a, say you are an aspiring writer and you go to a conference where you meet Kelly or you meet other agents. Mm-hmm. So what are, what are your tips for aspiring writers and what sort of um, best practices for <clears throat> behavior, perhaps? <laughs> oh, goodness. Do's and don'ts. Um, do's and don'ts. Okay, so a do is um, if you can swing it, I think authors having business cards is nice. Um, that has just your contact information on it and your website. Um, your website might be as bare bones as just an online business card, which is also fine. Um, but I think a lot of times if you're talking to people and you can hand them a business card, that's always nice, not necessary, but, um, something, you know, that I have noticed in the past and found helpful. So that's a do, um, a don't, is to, so a lot of times at these conferences, um, there'll be like a separate room where agents are taking pitches and, um, that might also turn into their break room. There'll be scheduled breaks for agents. Um, respect the break time. Like I know it might look like a bunch of agents or editors are just kind of sitting around drinking coffee and not doing anything. And so you think, oh, now's a great time for me to go introduce myself when it's quiet. No, those, um, industry people have been on panels all day and taking pitches all day and been working all day. And they might be scheduled, you know, for eight or nine straight hours. And this is the one 15 minute break that they get. Um, so be respectful of that. Um, you know, just, just keep those boundaries (laughs) established. Um, And, you know, and there might be like a specific mingling time where, you know, authors are welcome to come and, you know, kind of mingle and introduce themselves and talk to people. And that's great. But um, it'll be pretty clear when people are taking a break and just try to respect that because we really need those breaks. Um, Another piece of advice that's not necessarily a do or a don't, but just a general piece of advice is don't schedule a pitch with someone if your project isn't finished. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a waste of your time and money because if they like it, then they're going to ask to see it at the end and you're going to have to say, well, it's not done yet. <laughs> and that's just going to be disappointing. Um, or you might run out of time, like you might run out of things to say, you know, you'll say, well, I'm starting this, you know, fairy tale retelling, but it's not done. And then you just sit there in silence, you know, for the rest of your 15 minutes. <laughs> so, you know, if, if you sign up for one of these pitch conferences, you have to pay money for them and make sure that you're using your time and your money wisely, you know, make sure that it's the appropriate time for you to pitch your project. Don't just you know, don't just do it because your dream agent is in town and you want to meet them. You know, if your project isn't ready, um, that's not going to be helpful for you. Yeah. And people do that. (laughs) There is, um, it's going to sound a little bit mean, but, um, put your thirst away. I think, I think you can, people can sense it when you're so eager to be published that you've sort of maybe overlooked some crucial steps on the way to being published people it is a small industry and people kind of do talk if they don't name names they still tell stories about yeah there's that weird encounter i had you know like Mm -hmm. 
there's always those horror stories about like there's an agent who went to the bathroom and then someone slipped like a proposal under the stall door. Like yep. don't don't do that. You know, like of all places, like this agent is just trying to to pee like you don't pitch someone when they're literally trying to pee like it's just don't do it you guys it's respect people's boundaries and i think that's actually pretty key i think a lot of people don't know what the boundaries are or they don't respect those boundaries i i don't know i i, I tend to find this kind of a difficult thing to navigate as a public figure so you know like i said to you guys those of you who whose books are coming out but you are not at, at these festivals yet. Cherish these. <laughs> Cherish these moments where you are not a public figure and you can just bask in the knowledge that you will be an author, but you're not there yet. Because, as I said, publishing itself is a whole different beast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, being at these festivals as a published author, um, first of all, I guess it can depend on what you're going for. I love panels. I like being on a panel. I like telling stories. I like performing, to be honest. Um, so that doesn't actually bother me. Although I know a lot, I know a lot of people freeze up a little bit, and they don't necessarily know what to do or what to say. And I understand that. Um, so, but for somebody like me, I enjoy being on panel. I like you know talking extemporaneously with people. I. Um, I think it's also for me, it's a really, it's crucial to read not just the chemistry of the room that you're speaking to, but the chemistry of your co-panelists. You know, if you're talking too much, then maybe step back and let other people tell a story. Um, Sometimes we try and help each other out. Like if someone's Mm -hmm. joke falls really flat, then some of us will try and step in and kind of be like, try and smooth things over a little bit. Um, You know, it's, this is, I I enjoy being on panel. I have a fun time doing that kind of a thing, I think. But, you know, for as much as you might kill it on a panel, (laughs) um, you may have no one in your signing line and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Or like, yep three people in your signing line. Actually, I think, you know, so my friends and I were in Charleston and uh, we were talking to each other just about, you know, signing lines and various experiences. It's like one thing to have one person, like to have no one show up, but then to have like one or two people (laughs) show up is actually infinitely worse. Um, Because you still, it's like, if it's just one person, then maybe you can kind of be like, oh, it's like, I'm just talking to you. What are you, you know, why are you here? Let's just have a conversation. But if it's like two people, you almost have to fake like you're doing it for a whole room, but it's just two people, which is just the worst. Um, But yeah, be prepared to, you know, have no one if few people come up to your signing. That happens, you Mm -hmm. know. Every author has gone through that. Even even huge best-selling authors, everyone goes through that kind of experience. So... Don't think you'll be one of the lucky ones who who never gets to experience it because you will. Yep, happens to everybody. Happens to everybody. Um, I think make liberal use of the green room because generally these festivals should have them for exactly the same reasons Kelly had mentioned. You don't often have a chance for a break, and it is very very tiring 
to be constantly interacting with people, especially as I think the vast majority of us are introverts. So just interacting with people all day can be very, very exhausting. Also, if you have any issues about having photographs taken of you, be upfront about that and that you prefer not to have photographs taken of you, but also be prepared to have people ignore that. Um, mm-hmm. And also be prepared to have them tag you in the absolute most unflattering moment that you're speaking so it looks like you've got 10 chins or that you're going to eat your co-panelist's face off. Like, those are often... You just either get used to that, or at least I have, you know. At first I used to be like, oh, I look terrible, and then I'm also like, there's so many of these, I don't care. (laughs) Um, This is what I mean. At a certain point, you do become a public figure, and that is kind of a line that I can't tell you how to navigate, because I'm still figuring that out, how to be a public figure. Yeah. It is a very strange thing. I mean, even as... um an agent, you know, I was taking pitches at a conference and I had one young woman who had scheduled a pitch conference with me and she sat down and she burst into tears and she couldn't recover herself because she was so, um, just overwhelmed. And I think it was, I don't think it was like, Oh my God, Kelly Van Sant is here. I think it was just like, she was, you know, in front of an agent and she wanted so badly to be published and wanted to make the most of it. And it was like anxiety and all of these things, you know, but she just sat there for, you know, her time. And I was just kind of like, I'm just a person. It's okay. Like we can talk about your book or about something else or whatever. And I think that I know that, um, readers often have very emotional reactions to, uh, meeting their favorite authors as well. And being on the receiving end of that itself can be overwhelming. Um, so yeah. I- You know, I used to say, and this is still true about me, I don't like people. (laughs) I'm just not. I'm like grumpy cat. Just don't touch me. Um, But at the same time, a lot of these people have come a very long way to see you and to tell you what that your work has meant a lot to them. And at first I was just like, eh. But then I was actually the person on the receiving end of signing and I realized, no, these people have spent a lot of time it's going to be terrible for them to come all this way. And then for me to just, you know, be an absolute rude person to their face. So I try, I try granted. I, you know, I think there's a certain limit to which I can do this. And I kind of understand why a lot of really big authors, you know, limit time with their fans because that's just like a wall of people coming at you all the time. And like, so I think my very first experience with this was actually at Y'all West, which was earlier this year. Feels like last year, but it was actually only (laughs) earlier this year. It's been a long time. So many centuries. (laughs) What is even time, you guys? Um, But so I had a pretty big signing line on my Friday night, and I didn't quite expect that. And... It just, you know, and this, and I was signing for over an hour straight, an hour straight where I'm trying to interact and to make it feel like these people who've bought tickets and have standed in line to come see me, to make it worthwhile for them to, you know, thank them for coming, you know, to, you know, that I'm, and I don't, and it's like a fine line to balance because you don't want to be chummy chummy with your readers. I think that's a line that I don't ever want to cross, you know, regardless of the, of, you know, them coming to see me and I want them to have a good experience having met me, we're still not friends. 
You know, I think, you know, it's still in some ways a transaction. So I don't want any of that sort of weird closeness. And that boundary really is difficult to find. Because there are, I, you know, as much as I hate to say it, there will be people who try to take advantage of that. There are people, I've had people come up to me at events and very creepily lean over and be like, you are so pretty. And it's not actually all that flattering when it's um, a completely strange man who says that to you. And, you know, and authors don't have security details the way a lot of other people do. And so we're often by ourselves and we're kind of like, how do I handle this situation? And then a lot of other people come up to you and they try and slip you their writing. And not that I want to discourage people from writing, but I cannot read their writing for many, many reasons. Partially, you know, what if for legal, you know, what if I read their stuff and, you know, mine happens to be similar and all that sort of, there's like a legal possible legal question, but also I don't have time or the emotional bandwidth to to be everyone's critique partner. I'd be a writing teacher if that were the case. And they would still be paying me if that was the case too. So, you know, I know there's a lot of, especially women in particular, and there are a lot of women in this business, they feel this need to be nice, this need to be accommodating. But, and I think you should be grateful to your readers, but I don't think you should bend your over backwards just to make them feel great. So... So I'm sorry that took a real dark turn, but I've been dealing with that all weekend. I'm very tired. No, I think that's important. And I think that, you know, it's something that we've talked about in other various ways. We've talked about it a little bit when we talk about writers and social media and, you know, other kinds of things. But I think, you know, establishing a boundary between your author self and your personal self, I think, is important and helpful and healthy, um, you know, I think, I think it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And there's, you know, and social media is weird because it is our most curated versions of ourselves on there. I mean, for very specific reasons, I don't put my fiance on social media. I, if I do take a picture of him, I will always like put a bear, draw a bear over his face. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I, I don't, I always ask my friends too, are you okay with me sharing this picture of you? I think that's a courtesy that you should ask your friends, especially if they're not comfortable being public figures, um, you know, and, or even like, and this is going to sound super paranoid, but like taking a picture of where you're staying, you know, like don't take a picture of your hotel room or don't, you know, there's a lot of really weird things that you just start to end up being kind of like, mm -hmm, I don't know. So it's a weird world out there. And I think that's, that is often the hard part about being published. Mm. You are, you are a public figure now. And mm. where this is what I meant, like the, the, the months before I was published and I had a book coming out where looking back, obviously anxiety ridden, although I'm not particularly anxious, you know, obviously you want your book to do well and all those sorts of things, but you're not a public figure yet. So you can still be a fan of things in a way. Yeah. And it's, it's pure. It's untainted. <laughs> um, again, sorry to be a downer on you guys. Ask me something more cheerful about these sorts of things. Well, one thing I've noticed is that you have a lot of friends that are also writers, and sometimes you guys will travel together to these things. And I think that's really great because at least you have that support network of your all kind of in the same boat, you're have that shared experience and can kind of lean on each other through that. 
Yeah, and part of that is part of that is sort of mercenary. So earlier this year, I went to New Orleans um, with Renee Atia and Sarah Nicole Lemon, and Renee was actually there for StoryCon. We weren't there for any. Lemon and I weren't there for any particular reason, but Renee just asked us to come, you know, and we spent that time networking with other people who were there. You know, that was obviously very generous of Renee to ask, but that was also for us to hang out. I think that is also crucial. I think having friends in the industry who are who are your friends and not your colleagues. I think everyone Mm -hmm. in this industry is your colleague. So you can be friendly with them and you can enjoy hanging out with them. But I think you should try and find your tribe (laughs) because they really are the people who who will keep you sane. And not only will they keep you sane, they will also tell you the hard things. So they will tell you when you're out of line or when your expectations are too high or any of these things. Your your friends will try and call you in and, and say this is when you're being terrible So I think finding your tribe is very, very important. And again, I can't tell you how to do that. It just sort of happens often. Um, You know, in, you know, in my case, Rosh, Roshni Chakshi and I, you know, we have the same editor and she was in town. Um, And just like a lot of these connections form organically as they should. You can't. You know, it's just like making friends in any other situation. How do you make friends? I don't know. You just do or you don't. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But regardless of how you make friends, I think it's very, very crucial to find your your tribe of people because they will they will be the ones who keep you grounded. All right. So have I depressed everyone enough about um, conferences (laughs) yet? (laughs) It's real. We're being real. Our our listeners value that. We don't sugarcoat it. No, we don't. (laughs) Anyway, so what are you working on? What am I working on? Um, I have crash read two manuscripts this week, and um, I made an offer on one on Monday, and I'm going to make another offer, I think, um, soon, later on this week. Um, So I'm very excited about that. It's always really exciting to find new projects that you get excited about. And both of these, the reason that I crash read them is because of course these people have other offers in hand. Mm -hmm. And this is an interesting part of agenting that I have kind of evolved my stance on over the course of the year. So it used to be last year when I was just getting started, somebody would email me and say, you know, I have another author, uh, another offer of representation. And I have this deadline. If you'd like to, you know, be interested, if you're interested, let me know. Um, and I would just start requesting everything and just like try to read it all because somebody else had an offer on it. And that quickly became, um, it was just exhausting. And half the time it wasn't really a manuscript that I was actually interested in representing. I just felt this pressure, like, Oh, I've got Mm -hmm. to read this and, and make a decision. So I've since scaled back a lot on things like that. And a lot of times now, if I'm not the first offer, if I don't read it and decide, you know, I want to make an offer on this and I'm the person setting the deadline. Um, I would say like 90% of the people that come to me now that say they have another offer in hand, I just step aside immediately. And partly it's because, um, I just don't have the time. (laughs) Like I have so many client things going on right now and so many other things that are happening that to crash read a manuscript, um, 
in that time is complicated. And, you know, I have a child, so my work hours are my work hours, but then I have to be mm-hmm. a parent the other time. And so I'm really limited. So no matter how fast I read, um, you know, it's just a matter of, can I get this done in, in a week? So a lot of times I'll say, honestly, you know, this sounds really interesting, but, um, I'm going to step aside so that you can make your decision by your deadline. But every now and then, um, I get that notification and then I read the query in the sample. Cause usually I haven't even gotten to that query yet. Um, and I'll read the query in the sample and I'll be like, Oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then I say, okay, I'll make it work. Like I'll do what I have to do to, to read this manuscript in this time frame. Um, so that's happened twice this week. And of course they're both in the same week. Um, so that's pretty exciting and I don't know what will happen. I'm a little nervous because of course the last time this happened, um, last month I, I did the same thing. I got that email. I said, yes, I want to see it. I read it. I fell in love. I made the offer and I lost. So, <laughs> so I'm scared that it'll happen again. And if it doesn't happen this time, it will happen again. I mean, obviously rejection is a part of this industry at every level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I put myself back out there <laughs> It's, it's the beauty contest of being, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause it's not that only writers re- receive rejection. Everyone receives rejection. And the worst is like when I was an editor and I wanted to buy a manuscript and I had an offer and another house had a competing offer and they're like the similar sized offers and the author decides to go with someone else. I'm like, but why mm-hmm. we could have yep. been so good together. Um, That's true. It's so hard not to take it personally because really it is not personal. It is business and it's a business relationship and I can't fault anybody because, you know, I consider myself an advocate for authors. And the first thing that I'm always going to do is tell you to make the best decisions for you. It's your career, not anybody else's. And so, you know, if I'm not your best fit, then don't sign with me because it won't be what Mm -hmm. you want, you know? So, so I believe that strongly. It just, hurts. <laughs> yeah. It's like, like I said, it's like, Oh, but we could have been, we could have been so good. <laughs> I know. I know. So I have high hopes. I really loved this book. Obviously I can't say anything about it cause I don't even represent this person, but, um, Oh, it was so good. I read it all in one sitting or one laying down at night on my phone because my Kindle wasn't charged and I didn't want to bother looking for the cord. <laughs> and so I just read it in the dark on my phone while my husband slept next to me and Oh, it was so good. So yeah, that's been my week. What about you? Um, I am finishing up proofreader queries for Shadow Song, which are basically exactly what it sounds like. It's when people f- like go th- go through with a fine tooth comb your manuscript and point out, you know, small little small details about like you know if there are inconsistencies or if there's odd repetition or anything like that. They will they will ask you a question. And so that's fine. And that's what I'm working on. And most of it is quick enough and small enough for me to just kind of do in an afternoon. And I am drafting, um, the first guardians book still don't have a first line. Right now. I literally have a placeholder first line. It just says placeholder first line in brackets. That's Um, so funny. Have you ever done that before? No. Like where you've written beyond the first line without having the first line. No, this, this drafting has been kind of weird. It's a little patchy. <laughs> um, and then I will actually write all the dialogue first, and then I kind of will fill stuff in around it. Um, huh. 
it's you got this is the thing about writing guys every book is different and this means that every book is hard it will never get easier because you every book will just be a different beast um so yeah sorry to be a downer again you guys <laughs> um but i I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with this um yay tonally it's a big not a huge huge shift but it is it is a shift from my previous two books my previous two books are pretty heavy this one is tonally much more lighthearted, um, and that's what I'm having fun with. I'm having fun with the lighthearted part of it, but I think I'm because it is lighter in tone. I'm having difficulty finding the tone because mm. I could slip into the tone of Winter Song and Shadow Song pretty easily, and I didn't have to think about it because that that was a muscle I'd use, so I I could yeah. use it again, and it was familiar. But this one I haven't found it yet. <laughs> So I think that's why I'm struggling a little bit at the beginning. But I have a lot of, you know, the dialogue for sure is kind of the first thing that's getting written in this book. And I'm having fun with that. So that's what I'm working on in terms of Guardians. Um, There's just like other business stuff I should be working on that I'm just too tired to do. (laughs) Like, you know, I should read, like add stuff to my website. I should, you know... There are other anthologies and writing projects that I sort of tentatively said yes to that I need to think about sending stuff in for. So <laughs> there's a lot of stuff happening. And there's like a short story I have to give give at the end of the month that I completely forgot about. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I don't write short stories. Like the ideas don't come to me very well. So I'm trying like I'm stumped. because I'm trying to figure out what on earth the short story is going to be. So um, but that's that's what's happening on my end. Um, what are you reading? I haven't read anything, um, published in the last couple of days. Cause I've been reading these manuscripts. Um, I did just go onto my library website last night and put like 17 things on hold that I'm super excited for. Um, but none of them have come in yet. So nothing new read recently. What about you? I realized I forgot to talk last week about the book of dust, <laughs> which yes, I was like, how did how did that happen? But the Book of Dust, if you guys don't know, is the long, 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 long-awaited companion to his Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. Um, this one is a prequel. I was a little surprised because I thought it was supposed to be a sequel. But then he said, these books kind of take place before, during, and after the events Mm. of... So it really truly is a companion trilogy. So this one is a prequel, and it takes place before Lyra is... Before we meet Lyra in The Golden Compass, she's a baby in this one. So um, we we get the story of how she ended up at Jordan College. And I really, really loved it. I don't know if I have any real objective distance from the story simply because I really, really love it. But, and I love the whole universe and the world and everything else, but I have always loved Philip Pullman's storytelling. It's a very classic sort of feel. I don't love his adult work nearly as much as I love his children's work. And a little bit the same with Neil Gaiman, to be honest. Like I love Neil Gaiman's children's work, children's fiction, but I don't actually like his adult work nearly as much. And, uh, Philip Pullman has written some adult books, um, what was it? The um, the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway, <laughs> uh, 
Um, and he retold a bunch of fairy tales. And so I've read a lot of his stuff. But this one, to, you know, the Book of Dust, the first one is called La Belle Sauvage. And it the main character is a 11-year-old boy named Malcolm. And he's great. And I, I really do love when the story takes place from an 11-year-old's point of view. He seems to get that point of view really, really well. So um, so I read that over the break. I <laughs> just finished the last book in the American Queen trilogy by Sierra Simone. And I don't I think I've talked about her stuff before, but she writes erotica. Um Yes. These are thinly not even thinly veiled, these are actually overt retellings of the King Arthur legend. And I think I also mentioned last week that I'm very picky about my Arthur retellings, and this is excellent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh. Um there are many things about these these particular books that I felt like were tailor made for me, just in terms of like how she approached the Arthurian retelling, just like small things here and there. There are also contemporary, which I don't normally read contemporary novels, but um, or contemporary huh. anything. But um, I'm going to tell you guys the premise, and it's going to be so filthy, but I don't care. <laughs> but basically, uh, American Queen is a menage story. <laughs> So basically imagine... I mean, it's King Arthur, so obviously. Obviously. It's like someone read the sex scene in The Mists of Avalon and was like, I could update that and make it erotica. And I was like... I mean, goals, basically. I applaud you. Um, but basically, so King Arthur then, now in this particular story, is the president of the United States. So... <laughs> Let me tell you, reading it in this current climate is a little weird. Oh, dear. Uh, oh, dear. <laughs> um, and Lancelot would be his VP. <laughs> and it sounds so filthy when I tell you guys, but let me... I really, like, these are really excellent. Really well characterized. There are points where I, like, almost cried. I was so... It's just, like, she's... Ex, she's such a good writer. Um... Sierra, so Sierra Simone, she's written a whole bunch of other stuff. I think her first one was actually called Priest, which is also very good. Um, but this particular trilogy, I really, really loved. So I highly recommend that. Um, I'm thinking, trying to remember if I've finished or read anything else. I have a couple of things that I need to get to for blurb-related re- blurb related purposes. I have an arc of... Um, Fury Born by Claire Claire Legrand that I'm looking forward to, and a couple of other things have come in. But and I ha- actually have I bought like a hundred dollars worth of research books while in China, so I have to get to those as well. <laughs> so that's what I'm reading. Any off menu recommendations? Not. Really, I think I hit most of them last time. We're still uh, uh, getting through Stranger Things too. I'm I'm trying to be loyal to my husband and not be a Netflix cheater, which is very hard for me. But uh, I'm doing it, and so we're only on it. We are we're on like episode seven of ten, so we're almost done, but not quite. And that's been great. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's anything I didn't talk about last time. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I have been re-listening to Fiona Apple's music (laughs) because a friend of mine was trying to talk about um, finding music that was like encapsulated how angry all women are feeling these days. And I just kind of jokingly was like, we should all be listening to Fiona Apple. And then I went and did it. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a good soundtrack for right now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I actually have all of her albums uh, and have just been kind of listening to those. So old, but, but good. If you need something to, uh, to fuel the resistance, (laughs) Fiona Apple's not a bad choice. Uh, Yeah. I don't know that I have anything else really. Um, I started Skyrim since we last talked. It seems no, I don't know why, and partially I don't know if it's because it's first person POV. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually have trouble with motion sickness in first person POV, and I had to like ask around. I was like, "Is there any way you can switch the POV?" And I think there is, so I haven't yet played it. I don't know. There was something about Dragon Age that. There's something about the characters, anyway, that made me invested mm-hmm. immediately. Whereas this one, you don't know anything about anyone yet. You don't know... I'm like... I'm not that far, you guys. I'm like an hour into the gameplay, and I've only met Hadvar. <laughs> like, yeah. I could never get into Skyrim. I never actually played it myself, but I hung out with some friends while they were playing it. And I was like, this is just not for me. And I, I, I mean, like, it kind of should be on paper, but it just wasn't. Yeah, I'm going to give it another chance, um, but if it doesn't really maintain my interest yet, I think I think I'll probably move on to either play the other Dragon Age games or maybe Mass Effect, uh, which is I've the same. I've heard great things about Mass Effect. Yeah, and also because Mass Effect is the same video game company that does um, Dragon Age. So, yeah. And it really is the characterization of... Uh, the characters are really what drove me through Dragon Age, and I really, really got liked getting to know them, and I liked interacting with them, whereas I don't... And <laughs> it's the same thing, you guys, when it comes to books. Like, if I don't love the characters in the books I'm reading, then it's generally not enough to get me to finish... I will I will perfunctorily finish a book, but I won't actually, like, yeah. have any real feelings yeah, about it. You and I are not in it for battle mechanics. No. <laughs> no. Well, that's like the thing about Life is Strange, right? That Kelly and I keep coming back to. The characters in that video game just, like, destroyed me. Um, so good. So good. And and that I was so invested, not... And I think there's a difference, too, because, like, Skyrim is, because of the first-person POV, it's you. Mm. Right? It's like you. You are in the game. Um, and you can obviously, you yourself can play any, as any, whatever, whatever the options that they give you, the various races, you can play as whatever gender. But for me, even though I was creating my character avatar more or less for Inquisition, ultimately I still ended up distancing myself from my own character Mm -hmm. and was sort of this, like literally an avatar just in the game for this person to interact with other characters. Mm. Whereas... Again, I'm like an hour into Skyrim, and I've really only met Hadvar and his family, and I don't know anything about him or anything about why I should care. (laughs) 
And for most other people, they don't care about that. Like, they don't care. They think the world is cool, or they think the quests are interesting, or challenging, or whatever. And that is not why I play a video game. So I think this Mm -mm. is exactly why I kind of came up against that same block I've done with many other video games, which is just like, well, I don't care about the actual gameplay Mm -hmm. aspect of this. (laughs) Whereas, like, even when I wasn't playing Inquisition and I was doing other things, I would want to go back to playing Inquisition. I would want to spend time with these characters, and not just for the cutscenes, because you could actually, like, the characters just, like, quip at each other as you're, like, yeah, wandering around. Wandering around. (laughs) You know, and the different mixture of people that you choose to go on these particular quests with you also have different dynamics. And so that's just fun... at least for me, that was fun for me to manage, and it was fun for, and it just provided a bigger, broader portrait of the characters that I was playing with in this world. Plus, you go on personal quests for these side quest, you know, characters, and you get to know more about them through the personal quests. Hence, why like Dorian has my heart forever. And again, I I, I might just play as a guy. I just I might just play as a dude. That just might be my next experience. I'm just going to do it in Romance Dorian. Um, but it, it it is a very different experience. So I don't quite love Skyrim. But who knows? Like, it could just be yeah. that I'm getting used to it. You know, um, you never know that. But I feel like I was engaged almost immediately with Dragon Age. Yeah. So, I don't know. And other off-mini recommendations. Um... Nothing really. I think just the video game. I don't. I haven't really watched any television. Mark and I don't really have time. Mark and I have been like two ships in the night for like the month, past month. Um, but we usually find something to watch together. Um, but we just mm-hmm. haven't had time pretty recently. So, but that's pretty. That's that's it on my end. So I don't know. We forgot to ask for questions this time. So I don't know if we got anything. I don't think we did. No. But I think we have a old review that came in over the hiatus that we never read. Okay. Which, which is great because they throw a lot of shade at us in the last line and it's awesome. <laughs> uh, let me find it. <laughs> um. Here we go. We have a review. Oh, we have two. We have a new one that just came in on Monday. (gasps) I'm so excited. This is like my real-time excitement for for podcast reviews. I love it so much. Okay, so we have two. Um, One came in uh, back in September, and this is from The Real Catherine. Good show. 10 out of 10. Would listen again conversations about books and publishing that not everyone has access to, but now we do, thanks to this podcast. The audio the audio quality is really good. You'll probably hear how they feel about the ending of the Harry Potter series, <laughs> which touche, Catherine, because I can't that deny is that. Accurate. Cannot deny that truth. <laughs> it's amazing. This is right up here with Writer Girl Wasted, with like my favorite things ever said about mm-hmm. Pub Crawl. Um, and then we have another one. Oh my goodness. This is really long. Um, okay. This one is from potato yacker. Uh, and it says essential for all writers, but especially, and then I can't read 
especially for whom, because it cuts off. Um, (laughs) I love this podcast. I feel like I hit the lottery finding this. One of my biggest qualms about writing advice is that a lot of it often comes from people that are impossible for me to identify with. I'm 22, but I've been writing with the intent to be published since I was about 16, and I'm currently on my fifth manuscript. The typical just write that first book advice lobbed at young people doesn't work for me because I wrote that first book and the second and so on. I need more than that. Yet, for some reason, there seems to be a dismissal toward young writers by practiced veterans. It seems like serious advice is often leveled toward older writers and comes from older writers and industry professionals, most of them white and male. I can't tell you how incredibly important it is for me to listen to these two fabulous, younger, unapologetically feminist women discuss the industry and pick apart what works in books and media without framing it in a context that won't work for young artists. I really appreciate that they don't use age as a qualifier in their advice. The only other podcaster I found to embody this is Sarah Enney from First Draft, an excellent podcast, I by the way. Her. I I've been on her podcast. Well. Um, but since that podcast is structured around interviews, it doesn't always have as much advice and analysis as I prefer, which is why Kelly and JJ are utter lifesavers. I'm not sure if it's intentional, but their respect for all writers, regardless of age, gender, or race, was something I picked up on immediately. I also really, really appreciate that Kelly and JJ speak openly and honestly about issues like sexism and racism in the industry. They manage to be unflinchingly honest, but still incredibly kind. This kind of commentary makes them easy to listen to and even easier to trust. I feel like I leave every podcast episode having learned something new. It may sound corny, (laughs) but it feels like Kelly and JJ are super cool older sisters I never had who are willing to get real when it matters, but they're never dismissive. I'm so thankful that they made this and are still making it. I'm not sure if you guys read reviews. We do. We do. (laughs) But if you see this, thank you from the bottom of my heart for giving me two more people to look up to. I'm like emotional. (laughs) Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Potato Yucker. That was amazing. And that's literally the first time I read it was reading it out loud. And that was wonderful. Thank you. We try really hard to be, uh, to be honest and, you know, and we've, reflected our politics and worldviews here and um i'm glad that has been a positive for you (laughs) yeah i mean i mean obviously we are two women um and this is an industry that is mostly run by women but um i am a woman of color so it is a Mm -hmm. slightly different perspective i think coming from me um, I'm a queer woman of color who is also crazy. I have bipolar disorder. So there are a lot of marginalizations I could probably speak to. But, you know, I don't want to to reveal that about myself simply because, you know, it's like I want to have street cred. But that I, I think it does give me a slightly different perspective. And what it mm-hmm. takes, I think, to make this job work. Because it's, I think, a lot of times, and what used to irritate me was I would hear a lot of people all either talk about being published as they were the most grateful thing in the world. Um, that they're so lucky and they're so <clears throat> great. And it, I'm just like, well, you're just discounting all the people who hustled their butts off to get to where you are. Yes. Um, and then there are the people who are incredibly just like, well, of course, like they go the opposite way. Well, like, of course, all of this is, you know, deserved or whatever. And I, and I don't think that's the real picture of what it's like i think people want to either play it cool or they want to they want to 
believe that you know that you're one of them or you're that they're one of you that they kind of go too far in the opposite direction (laughs) so yeah like i said i always apologize for bringing things down on the podcast it's not all it's not all sparkle ponies and unicorns but uh this 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 job is anything but (laughs) and yet we're still in it kelly right that's got to count for something it does have to come for something no i mean it's it's real people are in this industry because they love it. And that does not negate the hard work that comes with this industry and the, you know, access barriers that come with this industry and all of the problems that this industry has, um, you know, but we all love it and that's why we're here and hopefully we can all make it better too. And part of making it better is, um, sharing information with, people who want to become a part of the industry and tell it like it is. Yeah. I think again, I said this about finding your tribe and that is really what gets us through being Mm -hmm. in this industry that we can, because you have to be honest and completely honest with somebody warts and all in order to be able to make it. (laughs) Um, because it's also like for all the, because they're also the ones that remind you why it's worth it. They're the Mm -hmm. ones that will listen when it's terrible. And, but they're also the ones that will remind you when it, why it's worth it to be in this industry and to work on it. So, but thank you very much, Potato Yakra. That was really lovely. Yeah. That is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about your debut year and or writing book two. So kind of a peek behind the curtain of what happens after you've been published. So now you've published a book. Now what? (laughs) (laughs) You're done, right? You just go home. Your goal achieved. No, there's actually many, many more things that happen next. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to talk about all of those. Um, And as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or my website, penandparsley.com. You can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag AskPubCrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye! Bye!